tonight's sensational sensations. French fleet flounders in Caribbean carnage. Seattle Stampede 65,000 workers walk out. And Manchester United plane plops in Munich. Plus, coming up, we reveal the truth behind the mystery of the disappearing jam. Those are the headlines. Don't forget to send in your photos of the apocalypse. News Bang, taking the fiction out of fiction news. 1806. 1806, and it's all action in the Caribbean Sea as a British naval squadron took on five French ships of the line at the Battle of San Domingo. It was like watching an episode of Pirates of the Caribbean, The Revenge of Nelson's Column. Our boys in blue sank or captured five Frenchmen, leaving them with more holes than a Swiss cheese strainer. The battle raged for hours or days depending on how fast you could swim. Eyewitnesses described it as jolly good fun, except for those drowning, obviously. One by one, the Frenchies went down like snails without bicycles until only Le Grand Fromage was left afloat, but not for long. Captain Codswallop ordered his men to board her and they did so enthusiastically. Excuse de la pantalons often steam z. The French surrendered after realising they were outgunned and had run out of garlic bread. The victorious Brits sailed home to Spithead with their captures in tow, leaving behind a trail of wooden legs and shattered escargot dreams. Pity. 1919. In the year 1919, over 65,000 disgruntled workers in Seattle decided they'd had enough of working for peanuts and went on a five-day general strike. The strike, which was as wild as a raging bull elephant, demanded higher wages and better working conditions. Various unions lent their support like well-meaning but meddlesome aunts at a christening. Eyewitnesses described the scene. It was chaos, said Bill Narrows, an unemployed tightrope walker caught up in the melee. One minute I'm minding my own business juggling flaming torches. Next thing you know, there's anarchy in the US. The strike, led by union boss Red McFly, real name Shirley Williams, saw dockers down tools alongside carpenters who put down their hammers with other workers laying down whatever they could get their hands on. Fears grew that this mass job abandonment would bring America to its knees or at least make them late for supper. However, after days of tense negotiations where both sides hurled more insults than apples at Scaramouge Panto season, concessions were made on both sides, higher wages for shorter hours, and so began our modern work week. 1958. Tragedy struck the world of sport today as a plane carrying the Manchester United football team, also known as Man United or United, crashed at Munich Riem Airport in West Germany. The year was 1958 and 23 people lost their lives, including eight players from the club based in Old Trafford, Greater Manchester. Eyewitnesses described how the plane circled the airport twice before plummeting to earth like a dropped pie. One survivor, Dodgy Dave from Deptford said, It was just like slow motion. I mean, one minute we were singing Glory, Glory Man United and then bang, we were spread all over the runway. Another survivor added, I saw Jeff Assel score a goal in mid-air. It should have stood. The disaster sent shockwaves through the footballing community and beyond. Sir Bobby Charlton OBE was later seen consoling his brother, Jackie Charlton Oboe, or Best Offer. 
The cause of the crash remains unknown, but early reports blame pilot error or possibly too much red on board. The airport closed its doors for good in 19,992 after complaints about noise pollution from angry ghosts. News bang! Unleashing the hounds of truth on the bullshit brigade. Presenting your weather forecast for the day, our resident meteorological maestro, Shakanaka Giles. Uh, ah, tomorrow's weather. Starting in the southeast, where it'll be a bit like a cat in a bath, damp and rather disgruntled. Expect a drizzle that'll make you feel as if you've been licked by a thousand tiny tongues. Moving on to the Midlands, where the wind will be playing a merry tune on the trees, a bit like a tipsy musician at a medieval fair. The temperature will be around 5 degrees, so wrap up warm and don't forget your trusty cloak. Um, uh, to details. In the north, it'll be a frosty morning, the sort of frost that makes the world look like it's been dusted with powdered sugar. But don't be fooled, it's as cold as a witch's kiss. And finally, in Scotland, it'll be a day of two halves. The morning will be as grey as a stormy sea, but by the afternoon, the sun will break through, casting a golden glow over the land. In summary, a day of damp disgruntlement, merry winds, frosty kisses and golden glows. And that's all the weather. In the annals of American history, a watershed moment has been reached. The year is 1862 and the Battle of Fort Henry in Tennessee has transpired. This battle, a pivotal event during the American Civil War, unfolded between the Union and the Confederacy, a confederation that had seceded from the Union. The crux of this war? A fervent disagreement over slavery's expansion. Tennessee, a landlocked state nestled in the southeastern United States, is partitioned into three divisions and boasts Nashville as its capital. Its population? A staggering 6.9 million souls. And now, to shed light on this historical encounter, we turn to our esteemed correspondent, Brian Bastable. As I gaze out over the apocalyptic scene before me, my flak jacket already speckled with the innards of the man who wore it just moments ago, we see in front of us Fort Henry. Its redolent bastions and brooding gun ports have been rammed through by howitzers, which rumble past me now in endless procession. The very soil beneath our feet is awash with gore and muddy churned entrails from a battle so horrific that its memory will be carried forever on this wind to blacken the dreams of men yet unborn. As I stand atop this bullet-riddled parapet surveying an ocean of bloody carnage where broken bodies form islands surrounded by moats of filth, something stirs within my being. Is it fear a question for another day? For today, today I shall speak only of war and her horrors. And there are many here willing to share their stories with you via me and our final seconds together as we face eternity side by side, here upon this trembling ground soaked through with blood. 
which is not mine but soon may be, if these confounded mortars do not cease their ceaseless pounding upon our heads like fists against a door demanding entrance into hell itself. Brian Bastable reporting live from Tennessee during the American Civil War on this momentous day when Union forces achieved an important victory at the Battle of Fort Henry. 1919. In a remarkable display of solidarity, the year 1919 witnessed over 65,000 workers in Seattle down tools for five days. Their audacious demand, a call for higher wages. The strike, radical in its approach, sought to challenge American institutions and garnered support from various unions. Now in 1919, more than 65,000 workers in Seattle went on a five-day general strike demanding higher wages. The strike received support from various unions and was seen as a radical attempt to undermine American institutions. For further insights into this extraordinary event, we turn to our reporter Hardeman Pesto. Martin, I'm here in Seattle in 1919, where over 65,000 workers have gone on a general strike to demand higher wages. As you can see behind me, the streets are filled with protesters carrying signs and chanting slogans. Yes, Pesto, I can see that it's absolute chaos down there. Are you able to speak to any of the organisers to get their perspective? I have here with me one of the main organisers of the strike, Mr. John L. Lewis. Mr. Lewis, can you tell our viewers why you've decided to call this massive strike? Yes, well, we feel that workers here in Seattle and across the country deserve fair compensation for their labour. Wages have not kept up with the cost of living and people are struggling to feed their families. And Mr. Lewis, how long do you intend for this strike to last if the employers refuse to meet your demands? As long as it takes. We have the solidarity and determination to carry on this strike for weeks or months if necessary. We will not return to work until fair wages are met. Months, you say? Pesto, get back over there and inform Mr. Lewis that this country has just come through four years of bloody war in Europe and cannot sustain this kind of upheaval on the home front. Order must be restored. Mr. Lewis, I've just received word that the authorities are prepared to use force if necessary to end this strike. What is your response? We will not be intimidated. The right to organize is fundamental in any free society. If they bring force, we will meet it with non-violent resistance. I came here to chew bubblegum and demand fair wages, but when I'm all out of bubblegum... Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Labor unrest in 1919 Seattle. A tense standoff between workers and authorities that, as my colleague failed to mention, lasted less than a week. Now back to the studio where we examine the archaeological evidence that Mr. Lewis was, in fact, never out of bubblegum. Oh no, my bubblegum. 1820. In a tale that harks back to the annals of 1820, the American Colonization Society embarked on a mission to transport African-American emigrants to Liberia. This noble endeavor sought to relocate free people of color and emancipated slaves to the African continent. However, this bold initiative was fraught with peril, as high mortality rates plagued these settlers, with a mere 39.8% managing to survive the harsh conditions. Now, CBN's Melody Wintergreen has filed this report on the challenges faced by these early settlers in their quest for a new beginning. The shores of Liberia, where the sea whispers secrets of a new beginning and the winds carry the hopes of a people yearning for freedom. The American Colonization Society's vessel, the Mayflower of the Motherland, has set sail with a cargo of dreams 
embarking on a journey to repatriate African-American emigrants to their ancestral soil. Here, free people of color and emancipated souls seek to sow the seeds of liberty in an unfamiliar land that beckons with the promise of a fresh start. But this voyage is no pleasure cruise. It's a gamble against grim odds. The settlers face an unforgiving climate where fever prowls like a silent predator and survival is the prize in a deadly lottery. Only 39.8% will emerge victorious from nature's cruel crucible, their lives etched into history as the resilient roots of a nascent nation. As they disembark on Liberian sands, they carry not just their belongings, but the burden of expectation. They are pioneers in a land that offers no guarantees, only the unyielding challenge to carve out a community from the clutches of wilderness. And so as the sun sets on this historic day, these brave souls stand at destiny's doorstep. Will they flourish or falter? Only time will tell if this grand experiment in transatlantic freedom will bear fruit or wither on the vine. News bang, poking holes in the balloon of lies. Joining us now, Polly Beep takes us on a whirlwind tour of historical traffic incidents from Manchester to New Jersey, California to London, and finally back to New York. A thrilling ride through time and traffic. Here's Polly. Buckle up, road warriors. It's a time-travelling tango on the tarmac tonight. First, let's hop back to 1958. The Manchester United football team has just taken a detour they didn't expect at Munich Ream Airport. The crash, now known as the Munich Air Disaster, has claimed 23 lives. So, if you're planning a trip to Old Trafford, give the lads a thought and maybe an extra prayer. Now, fasten your seatbelts for our next stop, 1951. In Woodbridge, New Jersey, a train has derailed on a temporary wooden trestle. The deadliest train wreck in New Jersey, this incident has claimed 85 lives. If you're headed to the Garden State Parkway or the New Jersey Turnpike, watch out for those pesky wooden trestles. Let's make a quick pit stop in 1963. The Beach Boys are jamming on the A1, causing a major backup. If you're cruising down the California coast, you might want to give it a miss or join in the fun. Just don't forget your surfboard. Next, we're off to 1984. Big Brother is watching, and so are the traffic cameras. Delays on the M25 due to the Thought Police pulling over drivers for unorthodox daydreams. Keep your thoughts in check and your eyes on the road. Lastly, we're heading back to 1929. The Wall Street crash has caused a massive traffic jam in New York City. If you're on the FDR drive, expect delays as stockbrokers abandon their cars and leap from skyscrapers. Remember, folks, it's always safer to take the subway. Twenty eighteen. Here's Calamity Prenderville sharing a story of British innovation in the space race. Her account is so intriguing that it could almost convince you that a group of pub-goers came up with the design for SpaceX's Falcon Heavy. Good
Good evening, dear Newsbang viewers. It's your favourite tech-savvy presenter, Calamity Prenderville, here to regale you with a tale of British innovation that'll tickle your funny bone and warm the cockles of your heart. Gather round as I recount the story of SpaceX's Falcon Heavy, a rocket so powerful it could probably punch a hole through the moon. SpaceX? That sounds suspiciously American. Fear not, my dear friends, for beneath the shiny veneer of this seemingly yank endeavour lies the beating heart of British ingenuity. You see, Elon Musk may have founded SpaceX, but he clearly forgot to mention that he nicked the idea from a group of plucky Brits in a pub. These unsung heroes, armed with nothing but a pint of ale and a soggy copy of the Beano, sketched out their vision for a super-heavy lift launch vehicle on a napkin. Fast forward to 2018, and their dream became a reality as Falcon Heavy soared into the sky, its payload capacity twice that of its closest competitor. The Falcon Heavy is currently the most powerful rocket in operation. Quite an achievement for our plucky band of booze-loving Brits. With such might under its belt, it could probably tow Big Ben across the Atlantic while simultaneously brewing a decent cup of tea. So there you have it. Another shining example of British innovation taking on the world and winning. Let us raise a glass to our unassuming heroes and their mighty creation. Who knows what other wonders they'll conjure up in that pub. Perhaps they'll invent a time machine and nip back to 1984 to give me an exclusive sneak peek. Until then, keep your eyes peeled for more tales of British brilliance from your friendly neighbourhood presenter, Calamity Prenderville. Cheers. <laughs>The Lockheed bribery scandals involved bribes and contributions made by Lockheed officials during aircraft sales negotiations, implicating politicians and business leaders alike. And for more on the fallout from this extraordinary tale of corporate greed and political corruption, we turn now to our business correspondent, Perkins Stornoway. It's a murky Tuesday here on the Dogger, moderate or good. Let's talk about the Lockheed Corporation back in the 1976, as this day is the anniversary of a momentous scandal. The 40s veering southeast, three or four. It was then when President Karl Kochian admitted to paying three million doll lies in bribes to the Japanese Prime Minister Kakuei Tanaka. Biscay, slight, occasionally rough. That led to Tanaka's imprisonment and political turmoil in multiple countries in the 1970s. Hebrides, occasionally rough. Tanaka was a Japanese politician and served as Prime Minister from 1972 to 1974. Shannon, becoming cyclonic. Now this was an expensive scandal. Chromaty, east, veering southeast, three or four. The bribes and contributions made by Lockheed officials during aircraft sales negotiations are still discussed today. Trafalgar, west, becoming cyclonic, five or six. The scandal shook the business world, Fair Isle, variable three or four, and it was one of the most significant events in the history of corporate bribery. Thames, Fair, 
occasionally moderate. But as we know, business never stands still. Fastnet, good, occasionally poor. Lockheed Corporation is still in operation today. Seoul, occasionally moderate. However, they've faced challenges in recent years. Rockall, occasionally rough. Let's just hope they've learnt from their mistakes. In summary, the Lockheed bribery scandal is a cautionary tale for all businesses. Thames, fair, occasionally moderate. To avoid, Shannon, fair, occasionally poor. As always, if your company is feeling a bit iffy, Rockall, west or northwest, three or four. It might be time to seek outside help. Trafalgar, west, becoming cyclonic, five or six. That's the business. 1987. In a monumental stride for gender equality, Mary Gordron has shattered the glass ceiling as the inaugural woman to ascend to the exalted position of justice in the High Court of Australia. The High Court, a veritable zenith in the Australian judicial hierarchy, wields both original and appellate jurisdiction. This watershed moment marks a significant milestone in the annals of Australian history, potentially inspiring generations of women to strive for parity in all echelons of society. And now to delve deeper into this groundbreaking appointment, we turn to our cultural correspondent Smithsonian Moss. Now at this point of the evening we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, culture vultures. It's your main squeeze, Smithsonian Moss, dishing out the deets on a landmark moment that went down in 1987. Picture it. Australia, a land down under where beer does flow and men chunder. But guess what? The ladies? They're smashing the glass ceiling with a boomerang, babes. So there's this Sheila, Mary Godron, right? And she's not just any Sheila. She's the kind of barrister babe that says, I'll see your law and raise you justice. And bam, she becomes the first ever woman to park her power suit on the bench of the High Court of Australia. That's right, the tippy-top of the Aussie legal food chain where the kangaroos of justice box out the dingoes of injustice. Now, the high court, that's the big leagues, where they throw shrimps of legality on the barbie of judicial review. And Mary? Oh, Mary. She waltzed in there and said, G'day, mates. Let's put another precedent on the barbie. She was like the crocodile dundee of the courtroom. But instead of a knife, she had a gavel, and she was slicing through cases like a hot knife through Vegemite. But let's not forget the 80s, a time when mullets were business in the front, party in the back, and sexism was like, no worries, she'll be right. But Mary was like, not today, patriarchy. She grabbed sexism by the budgie smugglers and gave it a good old Aussie rules kick right through the goalposts of progress. So, hats off to Mary Godron, the trailblazing, law-slaying, stereotype-busting wonder woman of the legal world. She didn't just sit at the high court. She high-kicked through the glass ceiling and made legal history, all while probably fending off spiders the size of your face. And that, my friends, is how you make history down under style. Until next time, keep your kangaroos in a row and your koalas cuddly. This is Smithsonian Moss saying, throw another groundbreaking woman on the Barbie. News bang. The unvarnished truth served with a side of satire. 
And now it's time for a final look at tomorrow's headlines. The Times, Spain and France admit Gibraltar defeat. There's a photo there of a disappointed-looking monkey. The Independent, Japanese troops retreat from Guadalcanal. There's a graph there of a retreat. And finally, The Sun, Jordan's batty move. There's a photo there of a bat. That's it. On the day that a woman who was attacked by a man with a bag of crisps was told by police that she should have taken a packet of sandwiches instead. Good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.